With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone. I'm Scott Feinberg, and thank you for tuning in to the 269th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is brought to you this week by HBO's Barry. Catch new episodes of Barry, starring Emmy winners Bill Hader and Henry Winkler, Sundays at 10 p.m., only on HBO. My guest today is an actor and stand-up comedian who is best known for playing outlandish characters on screens big and small. The wild gangster Mr. Chow in the Hangover trilogy comprised the films released in 2009, 2011, and 2013. The insane Spanish teacher Senor Chang on NBC's Community, which ran from 2009 through 2015. And the nouveau riche prankster Mr. Go in the 2018 film Crazy Rich Asians, the first Hollywood film in 25 years with an all-Asian cast. This year, he has appeared as a regular panelist on the first season of Fox's The Masked Singer and starred in his first televised stand-up special, Netflix's You Complete Me, Ho, a deeply personal, funny, and emotional look back at his unlikely journey to stardom. I'm talking, of course, about the hilarious Dr. Ken Jeong. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 49-year-old and I discuss how he spent years of his life preparing to become a doctor, even though he yearned to be a performer, why, after becoming a doctor, he decided to walk away from his job and pursue a career in performing full-time, how a crisis at home almost kept him from accepting an offer to play Mr. Chow in The Hangover, the part that catapulted him to stardom, and what sort of backlash he received after the film came out, what the important lessons were that he learned from his time on Community, his own ABC series Dr. Ken, and from the events of his incredible past year, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Dr. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you for addressing me as doctor before <laughs> my contract. Thank you. So we always begin with just a few basics here. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? No comment. <laughs> Great interview. Um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and I moved to North Carolina when I was four years old. My father, he's a retired economics professor, and he'd gotten his PhD in economics at Wayne State University in Detroit. So he actually met my mother in Detroit. They got married and had me, or so they claim. And then they, <laughs> then I moved out to uh, yeah North Carolina, and really had all my formative years of education were in North Carolina, from primary school on to medical school. And if we were to go back there and track down kids that were in class with you, probably let's say grade school, junior high, and ask them what 
kind of a kid you were, what would we hear from them? Well, first of all, you can't find I scrubbed those records. <laughs> Secondly, they would say if you did, if you were somehow able to retrieve it, they, right. would, they would say that I was a pleasant nerd. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that I was just, you know, I was always studious and I had skipped second grade as a kid. So just to be here in this business is really an anomaly. Mm-hmm. So my whole trajectory was kind of like your classic Asian American upbringing in the 80s is mm-hmm. like, okay, you're going to go somewhere, you know, maybe a doctor if you're lucky, but somewhere in academics or science. So I think that's kind of, I was always raised to have that as anything else was just a side thing or a hobby. Was doctor specifically the thing in your family that your parents wanted you to be a doctor or you wanted to be a doctor or where was that coming from? Yeah, no, I, I was definitely Korean into being pre-med. I was <laughs> my Korean. Yeah. My dad was, uh, no, that was really the goal. And, and he was always telling me like, if you go into the sciences, you know, academics is the most prestigious. And I think out of all of them, medicine is the most prestigious because it's the really the only academic profession that really had that kind of financial stability. Mm-hmm. So you have the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. It's it's like being academically syndicated. I don't know. So it's <laughs> and, and yet, while that's being kind of to some degree imposed on you, I guess that this is what you should be doing with your life in the long run. It seems like even from quite an early age, there was a desire or at least an enjoyment of performing for others. Yeah. I mean, I took piano lessons since I was like six and later did violin when I was in junior high. But I always thought of those as just kind of like, certainly every Asian American kind of does that. And also it's part of being well-rounded, you know? So I just thought it was like, I had other role models growing up and people who were doctors who were also very musically astute. And I just thought that was just the environment I grew up in. But I don't recall any of those times I had a desire to perform until in high school. At the very end, I already got accepted into Duke and there was this mock male beauty pageant (laughs) that they did. And it was literally the last week of high school and I was very studious but I'd also was very active and outgoing like I was in student council mm-hmm. and so I was voted to be one of the contestants and I think I came out in some swim trunks and was doing kind of like you know kind of Arnold-esque <laughs> Hans and Franz poses right. and, and getting a standing up right. and so I didn't do theater in high school so I had no desire to be Was this the actor. same thing with Three Times a Lady? That was the same thing with Three Times a Lady that was a talent portion of it. So you sang that? I sang that and while playing piano and I just remember people were saying Ken girls were crying you know <laughs> it was like my napoleon dynamite moment awesome. so to speak yeah so you go off to duke and i believe that while you were there you were actually now getting into drama a little bit on the side your pre-med will take most of your time i would guess but you were finding ways to perform there yeah did you say drink at Duke my freshman year? Yes. Um, it was, I think, I do think, I do remember, like, I didn't take any acting classes my freshman year. Mm-hmm. I was on a pre-med track. But people just kept saying at Duke, oh, man, you're like the entertainment of the party. It was that kind of thing. I never really got that in high school. Right. I kind of kept to myself. Even though I was outgoing, I just had that balance. But at Duke, you don't go back to your parents' home, you know. Right, right, right. So I'm just there. So I'm... If I'm out partying or if I'm out perhaps partying more than I should, I, I just remember my GPA was not very good freshman year. And my roommates were just like, you're like the entertainment of the party. And and then somewhere in sophomore year, I decided to take an acting class like spring semester. And I think that's where, to me, life changed. And I got bitten by the acting bug. Was it and, something about that acting class's teacher or what you guys did in the class? What do you think it was that appealed to you? 
I felt it was all internal. I felt like I was looking for lack of a better word. I think I was looking for meaning. I think I was just looking like what I know I'm on this pre-med track, but I'm not doing that great. And I don't know if this is for me, but I'm conditioned to doing it, you know? And so I wasn't sure. And I think that's kind of what every college kid is very normal and healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but I was like, I literally just fell in love with it. The timing of everything. I was like doing dramatic monologues, doing comedy monologues. I wanted to do more theater and I or also, is uh, Hoof and Horn? What's yeah, I, exactly. I was just about to say that. I did this <laughs> musical theater. Was, yeah. Hoof and Horn is a Duke musical theater repertory. It's got a very long history and very prestigious to get in. And I auditioned for Kiss Me Kate, and I was just a chorus member. And they just saw me just having fun mm-hmm. in the background, and they would start kind of writing more for my character. Mm-hmm. And I still have it in my office it was kind of like the North Carolina equivalent of LA Weekly. It was yeah, called yeah. The Spectator. Oh, you got and, a review. Yeah, so I had a review, and it gives me goosebumps to thinking about it because it was like, I still remember the critics saying that I mentioned the great acting, the great musicality, the great staging. Did I also mention Ken Jeong, a puckish chorus member who best watches back if he keeps upstaging the principals? <laughs> and that was, you know... That's that, encouraging. Yeah, that was so encouraging, and it really just kept me going. And yeah. Well, were you thinking, you know... Maybe I should get off this pre-med track and focus on this stuff. How would that have gone down at home? Well, to your point, like I had auditioned to get into the Duke drama program full time. and Before you even started there at all at Duke? or No, during, were... at the end of my sophomore okay. year. It was that spring semester. Mm-hmm. And just for junior and senior year, just to, I was really considering it. And I got in mm-hmm. and I got accepted. And it was the same time I was doing Hoof and Horn. And, my, and that's where kind of all... I don't know if I can curse or that's where they should hit the fan, (laughs) you know, where, because I was really at a fork in the road and is where that, you know, am I going to continue on talking about taking voice class and just immersing myself in the theater department or kind of dig my way out of the sea that I was getting in organic chemistry second semester, you know, the drama department, I do remember they were saying like, we will support whatever you want to do. We think you can do both. Mm -hmm. But I knew I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I'm Just not, the volume of work. The volume of work, and I'm not that bright. I mean, I can't. I, it takes. <laughs> I, I'm a hard worker. I'm not brilliant in anything. So, especially academics, I'm just a hard worker. And my dad and I, we had a lot of honest, come to Jesus talks about it. And you know, I was definitely emotionally wanted to do the theater class, and it was a very civilized debate. It wasn't like you know, you do this or I disown you. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like that at all. There was no ultimatums mm-hmm. given ever, but. I think what got me ultimately to decide against doing Duke drama was my dad was saying, you know, you do you think you're emotionally ready to immerse yourself in what you're about to do? Are you willing to move to L.A. and New York? Because that's where this is all headed. You know, do you have the maturity to deal with all the rejection? Because you will, you know, and my dad went to all of my plays. He framed the Spectator article himself for me. He was very proud of me, you know. So he was like, I know you're talented. He was there at that mock male beauty pageant. He saw what I had in terms Mm -hmm. of aptitude. He just didn't have any faith Mm -hmm. that society would ever give me a fair shot. How much of that do you think was because you're of Asian descent? I think a lot of it was because I was Asian descent. I think, and it wasn't like a statement on the man or anything. It was Mm -hmm. just like, do you really think a person with your look can make that? And really at that time, there wasn't a lot of reason to believe that it could happen because what sort of representation did you see when you turned on the TV or went to the movie? This was before Margaret Cho. So you, I literally had Pat Morita, mm-hmm. you know, uh, off of Happy Karate Days Kid. and, so, and, and, and Karate Kid. Kid. 
Yeah, Karate Kid and Happy Days. But when you're in college, you're full of optimism and confidence. You know, you're like, I can handle it. I can do it, you know. But I did think to myself, it was less about the ethnicity issue was I was more concerned, like, emotionally if I could just handle rejection. Mm -hmm. I just think it's like you're just kind of driven. And it's like to get an F on a paper for no reason when you did a lot of work for Mm -hmm. that paper – that actually was more of the drawback, yeah. whether it was due to race or not. Mm-hmm. But it could just be due to aptitude. It, it could be due to a lot of different things. And I don't think I was ready to deal with those stresses, uh, the uncertainty of it. I, I was very used to having a path and mm-hmm. very used to like, you chop wood, you carry water, you get rewarded for it directly. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to wait? You know, mm-hmm. so there was that moment. And I felt like, well, Stick uh, with the, the... yeah, I, but it was hard, man. Yeah. I definitely depressed about it and now just thinking about it and flashing back to it it was so tough where to really divorce myself from the theater because i was known as kind of like an up-and-coming guy in mm-hmm. in duke theater and so it stopped it was or it just I, I stopped it was my volition i stopped cold turkey going into junior year Going into junior year, I did nothing but just try to improve my grades because I got an A in organic chemistry. That's like the weed out course of being pre-med. And then I'd gotten like a C or a C plus at second semester. And if I wanted to go to a decent med school or any med school, Mm -hmm. I would have to clean up like my other sciences like physics. So it's like LeBron being injured, you know, and (laughs) and pulling that groin for most of that season. Mm And then the last 20 games is just like, okay, I just need to make the playoffs. So I really had to just put my head down and just really just had to work as hard as I've ever worked in my life. And you must have done that because you wind up at UNC for medical school, and that's a great place. I do wonder, though, once you're there, where I would imagine the stress and workload is not less than it was at Duke, how did you then wind up back performing but in a different way? Well, it's so funny. It's a be careful what you wish for thing because I was lucky enough to get into Carolina. And it was, I always joke around with people, even you just saw me joke with Rebecca. Like yeah. I always say, like, you know, do Carolina, you know, <laughs> Carolina's the reason why I became a comedian. It was really, in reality, it was, I just felt like the momentum to me to perform was just still there. And so when I got accepted into med school, that's when I started doing stand up comedy. Was, Where did you do it for the first time? It was at a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina. Still remember, it was called the Berkeley Cafe. Mm-hmm. And they did an open mic night before this Grateful Dead cover band <laughs> came up. <laughs> and I stacked the deck. I brought like 20 friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just so I can get, you know. And this was the first time you're doing it in your first time these friends? Yeah. Wow. How'd so, it go? Well, I, as well as I instructed, you know, I instructed them to laugh, you know, (laughs) so uh, it went okay. All I remember is I went off script and, and I saw some deadheads in the crowd and I didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead. And I said, but I did know that one album that was like top 40 album or that one single that hit the billboards when I was a kid, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. I love the first single they ever did, Touch of Grey or something. <laughs> and they were like right. – and it was like such a – it was, just, and I just remember, you know <laughs> – and I, I just remember that got that got some laughs. Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny. I forget my written jokes, but I remember that right. – I remember that ad lib. And I think that kind of spark really kind of informed me, you know. And I would just do stand-up comedy. Every couple of months, there was this club in Raleigh, North Carolina called Charlie Goodnights. And I later kind of got my way there and did open mic there. And then I would find myself like being an opening act for, 
usually they have an MC, a feature, and a headliner. And right before the feature, sometimes that club would actually. Uh, I'm very grateful to that club because they would get like, "Hey, would you mind getting into this local comic five minutes of stage time?" And then I would just do five minutes. So who would be some of the people you preceded? Brian Regan, a very young Mark Marin, okay. Richard Jenny. There were some big names. Um, and you were Jeff by this Dunham. point confident enough to do that. You, felt, I had a yeah. tight five. Yeah, I had a good five that I knew I could get a laugh wherever. That's I mean, awesome. was it dependent on? sort of language or physicality or what were you leaning on? I think it was all performance. It was not, I'm an okay writer in general, but I do think that, especially at that time, it was all performance-based. It was really just to scratch my acting itch. Mm -hmm. It was really to scratch my performance itch. So I'd I'd put on music and I'd, you know, dance stupidly to Prince (laughs) or Rolling Stones. It was a whole performance piece. And this is all while you're carrying a med school course Yeah, and to your point, like, in med school in general, to get the idea of volume, it's the science curriculum of any college doing pre-med is voluminous. So, But the first two years of med school, which is mostly book work, is imagine that pre-med curriculum times three. It's so much volume. It is in Hollywood equivalent. Like Actually, when I ironically doing my own sitcom called Dr. Yes. Ken, it was – and I was one of the main exec producers. It was like – and I did everything. I wore every hat. So mm-hmm. I was writing. I was performing. I was also helping, giving editing. I was in the edit bay. And then also casting guest stars and things like that. So I, my hands were all over that. It felt just like med school, the amount of volume. I would come home, and I would often tell my wife, who's also a physician, was I said, this is – I had no idea trying to at least co-run my – we had a showrunner and a very good one at that. But he let me have a lot of freedom and a responsibility because he knew I wanted to learn. And so I said, just kind of running your own show is, is as tough as like the amount of volume. I, I can't even, Dr. Kim was just a couple years ago and I've just forgotten. <laughs> I just simply don't remember stuff. And that same thing with med school. They're so, like, yeah, they, even my act, like, how come you don't joke about med school? You know, cause it's the last I thing you forgot. It, it, yeah. yeah. And I just forgotten so much mm-hmm. when you're so deep in the weeds, mm-hmm. you just have to do it and you can't even contextualize it. You just got to just do it. So after five years, you get your diploma, and at that moment, what did you imagine the rest of your life was going to look like? I think towards that, I think year to year in med school, I was thinking of quitting the whole time. And, you know, I wasn't doing well in med school. And I, as you even talk about in my Netflix show, where I said, you know, failed a couple of standardized exams that really – it. Bit by bit, my confidence in me being a doctor just started waning, and I was like – you know, I said in my act, and you know, that test is really racially biased against Asian students who don't study very hard. <laughs> and um, and it, I, I just wasn't cut out. I just right. really felt I wasn't cut out for it. And then, so every year, I would kind of tell my dad, almost passive aggressively, like threatening him, just like, you know, I'm just, just not going to do this anymore. I just don't have it in me. I think I just. He goes, well, "What do you want to do?" I was like, "I don't know. Maybe I, the stand-up comedy seems to be going well. Maybe I just." Keep in mind, I'm living in North Carolina. Like, mm-hmm. I do maybe the Comedy Zone clubs or the Funny Bones and just start there. And my dad's like, really? And I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's the life I want to lead. But, like, I know that, you know, at that time I really was – it was day-to-day in my mm-hmm. head, at least emotionally. But I was able to pick up my grades. I was able to, I think, graduate with even senior year honors. So wow. I, I was able to follow through mm-hmm. and finish what I started. But I felt incredibly lost. And it was only until I went in my residency – in New Orleans, it was at Oxner Foundation Hospital. That kind of allowed me to 
connect the dots, if you will, between performing comedy and medicine, where the head of the residency, who really became my mentor, his name is Donald Irwin, mm -hmm. and a very prominent nephrologist in New Orleans. He was also on the committee of Jazz Fest. He's a very enlightened guy, and he loved the fact that I did comedy. And he said, and I would always hear this all the time, oh, comedy is, is great because I'll give you a better bedside manner. So that I knew, mm -hmm. you know, and that, of course, that goes hand in hand. But he said something that blew my mind. He said, but your medicine could make you a better comedian. And that works by, basically, that was his way of saying, you don't have to be a doctor full-time if you don't want to mm -hmm. after you graduate. I will still allow you in my program, even if you choose to do something else. Wow. And no program does that. Wow. No graduate program goes to say, you know, I'm going to interview for your spot mm -hmm. in botany, you know, and then you want to go into zoology, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> You're a plant dude. <laughs> now you want to study animals? What's wrong with you? <laughs> You're a fucker. You, you've been saying you've been, you're a plant lover, and I see you watching these leopard videos on YouTube? Go fuck yourself. You don't belong here at Pierce College Botany. I don't know. And uh, normally, graduate programs, of course they want to. You're investing money yeah. to, in graduate programs, yeah. but it just took a very, very outside-the-box guy to accept an outside-the-box person who was lost, and he really saved my medical career, my life. And once he did that, I was kind of like, I just, I actually loved being a doctor for the first time. I felt like I was working with people that understood me, that I have two different interests. I do like the academic side. I do believe in principles of doing, you know, chopping wood, carrying water, mm -hmm. getting rewarded for that. But I also have this artistic side. And then I realized, you know, that's where I felt most well-rounded, and I felt so free, and I would just openly just do coffee houses just around town in New Orleans, and, and, and the comedy scene wasn't as good as it was in North Carolina, but I was in an improv group every, like, Saturday at midnight, so I was actually doing more comedy, yet I was working, like, literally 80-hour weeks. Oh, my God. So I don't know even how I did it, but it was a work-hard-play-hard mentality, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was like this adrenaline rush for three years, and I actually became a better doctor and that program i mean i always told myself just to myself internally every year if i don't want to do it i shouldn't do, you know mm -hmm. i always gave myself those parameters whether mm -hmm. people knew that or not and actually in end of 95 i won this stand-up comedy competition in new orleans i wanted the, to ask you the big easy laugh yeah. off where it was judged by bud friedman who was a founder of all the improv comedy clubs and brandon tartikoff who was like the chairman of Paramount mm -hmm. and head of NBC mm -hmm. back when I was a kid. So yep. he had moved out to New Orleans, mm -hmm. and I was at the Orpheum Theater, and I won that contest. And the winner got to do two nights at the Hollywood Improv. And I got offered even representation by a personal appearance agent. Hey, if you want to move out now, we can put you on the road. You know, And I think that agent had also represented like – Jim Carrey whenever he did stand up it was a so now you had a decision it was hard but I made the decision myself and I said I like my residency too much mm -hmm. it was actually less difficult ironically than at Duke when I had absolutely no Hollywood connections well I guess though what that says is that you fought for and figured out a way to continue to do performance of some sort because that was important to you but it wasn't important to you because of some end like today if you talk to kids they don't say I want to be, you know, an actress. They say, I want to be famous. It doesn't sound like you had any underlying agenda. You just wanted to perform. Yeah. That is so funny. Like, I'm flashing back to my dad telling me, like, in general, even this is at, even after The Hangover, you know, he was always reminding me, like, 
Well, even in college, he was like, don't pursue fame. Even when we'd have these arguments about going into acting, like, you know, and performing, like, don't pursue fame. It's not going to get you anywhere. And I would tell him, like, very passionately, I'm not doing it for fame. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it because I really, really love doing this. It's the only reason. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be in a profession that involves fame. And it's so true. Like, there's so much pleasure where at Duke, there's some of my most purest moments ever where I'm just nailing this monologue and doing a dramatic monologue and just showing people my range. It's You can't put that in words. So there was that passion about it. And yeah, I willingly gave up looking back. I never thought about it that way. But yeah, I gave up two years of a chance of being famous because I just generally loved my residency. And I actually felt I owed it to myself. And I loved my program. And I felt like I was growing by leaps and bounds as a doctor. And there was actually doubt, like, well, maybe I will just stay a doctor. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But it actually gave me two years to finish my actual program, mm-hmm. be fully boarded, and then I moved out to California. So you complete your residency and you move to California because now you can pretty much be anywhere, right? Yeah. So that's... I was like a free agent. Yeah. Like in NBA terms, I was like this unrestricted free agent. Right. And I served out my contract. And there was something about just finishing what you started. Mm-hmm. And I did wonder if that would come back to bite me. If I dropped out of school mm-hmm. and then I go into showbiz, will I drop out of that? There is that psyche. They'll be like, oh, you're just a constant drifter. And I did tell myself, well, if I choose to go in entertainment, you know, I want to leave on top. I want to leave like John Elway right, where right. I've like done my thing. Right, right. You know, I actually felt motivated. I did tell myself while I was finishing my residency and studying for my board exams, I honestly believed I will be a more complete performer if I finish what I started. Mm-hmm. Like that's a principle that a discipline, I'm going to follow through and not flake out. And I felt like that was more of a life lesson that to this day I apply to my own career. Yeah, it was really just giving that inner strength. It was that maturity that I was alluding to and when I was talking about Duke. So I came to L.A. fully emotionally ready. I had lived the life, right. you know. I had experienced ups and downs mentally and I had challenges. So I came to L.A. like toughened. Like I just dealt with life and death for three years on right. a high level. And this was now going into Kaiser Permanente Hospital yeah. in Woodland Hills. This is probably generically where you imagine your life would be at that point in terms of working at a hospital, general practitioner, right? Going about your life seems like you were, from what I've gathered from Santa and everything, you know, basically content. But because you could do on the side or at night or whenever, you know, within a fairly close distance, a lot of stand-up clubs. It was – look, if the hangover had never happened or knocked up had never happened – I was living a great life. I met my wife at Kaiser at Woodland Hill. She works at Thousand Oaks. To this day, mm-hmm. she still works like two mornings a week just to keep her skills up. Oh, wow. Just because she loves it. Yeah. Which is what we trickle down to our kids mm-hmm. is do what you love. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about the money. Just do what you love. And back in 03, I had it good where my wife and I were just dating at that time. And I had access to the Laugh Factory. I had access to the improv. And... I was known at that time as that Dr. Comic, and I got on Comedy Central and BET Comic View, and so I was already known around the comedy circles as, like, you know, a really good opening act. You were getting those opportunities because they knew about your track record in New Orleans, or what was what got you in the door there? You just just, opened mics? Yeah, I just basically hit that stage and just... What I do like about stand-up that is different from acting is that if you're doing well in stand-up, you will get rewarded. Mm Mm-hmm. It is about as linear a profession as it gets, and that appeals to me 
whereas acting is not. Mm -hmm. And I was just doing well on stage, mm -hmm. from open mics to Laugh Factory. I was even managed by Jamie Masada for like a brief spell, like in 01. And that's when I got on Comedy Central. And so I was just getting more stage time. Was screen acting always an ambition? Because what people may not realize is that it looks like even quite well before The Hangover, which really put you on the map for most people, well before that, you're on episodes of Mad TV, Two and a Half Men, The Office, Entourage, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Boston Legal, on and on and on. If that chronology is correct, you're working quite a bit on TV in major stuff before anyone really knew who you were. Yeah, I was really lucky where I had an agent who is now my manager who during lunch breaks, and he was an acting agent, theatrical agent, and he was just starting out in the business and working at a boutique agency. And they would just get me pre-reads, like, only if I could just do it after work, mm -hmm. literally, like, at 6 o'clock mm -hmm. or during lunch. <laughs> and it was, like, so many times, like, after work, I'd go from Woodland Hills to CBS Rapper just to put myself on tape. And I, I just did that most of, I mean, countless projects. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember. Mm -hmm. But I ended up getting, I think the main break was getting on The Office that was in 05. That was with Allison Jones. And she really put me on the map because it was a one-line role in the office. Still one of my favorite guest appearance ever. It was season two. It was the improv class. And that's where Steve Carell was right off the heels of the 40-year-old virgin. Yes. And they were not casting for Asian. And The Office was not at that time, a popular show. It was on the verge of getting canceled, yeah, yeah. I later found out. But I love the BBC version so much. Mm -hmm. it's still to this day, I think the BBC office is my favorite sitcom mm -hmm, of all time. Mm -hmm. So I knew the tone. And it's kind of funny now because I am known for playing loud, outrageous Mr. Chow-esque <laughs> characters, how small I played it and the looks to the camera. And I would just do unscripted looks to the camera. And Paul Feig, of all people, was directing that episode. And I auditioned for Paul. Oh, and yeah. he couldn't stop laughing at the smallest movements. And I think that episode of The Office really put me on the map. Is that how Judd knew about you? Allison submitted me for Knocked Up because a few months later, they had auditions for Knocked Up to play the part of Dr. Cooney, the gynecologist, and why Allison deserves all the props. From what I understand, the kind of actor they're looking for, the type of actor they're looking for was kind of big Polynesian types, like, like sumo wrestler types. <laughs> and I think in real life... From my understanding, I think the Apatow's real-life gynecologist was based on that look. But I remember being in the room with a lot of Polynesian types. Right. And it was funny. Like, I do remember putting myself on tape and not hearing for three months. So I assumed I didn't wow. get it. And then I got invited to the table read and knocked up. Shauna Robertson, who was a producer for Judd at that time, had contacted Brett, my agent. And, yeah, went to the table read. And right when I got there, Shauna said, I just want you to know, to clarify, you did not get the part. We're still looking, but you were kind of in the mix. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but they're starting filming the next week, you know? Yeah. And so it is like the most highest pressured yeah, callback. Yeah, on this. And everything hinges on So that's Judd and every, all of his writers from right. Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. Right. And I'm sure Universal Studios was there. And I was so nervous. I think Gary Shandling was there. It was like I had to block all that out and not even think about it because as a fan, I would just faint because those are all my heroes. Did they know that you were actually a doctor as well because you're going to be playing? Judd knew I was a doctor. And yes, they knew of my med, but I don't think he did not know I had a comedy background. And it was Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg who saw my audition 
real from Allison, and they brought that to Judd. Mm-hmm. That was my understanding. Mm-hmm. And I do remember walking into that tape reading Seth going, hey, man, I really loved your tape. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a big Freezing Geeks right. and Undeclared fan, so I was like, man, this is – and 40-Year-Old Virgin mm-hmm. fan, so I was like, man, this is huge. I even Seth – knows who I am and then one by one then everyone just comes in the room it's like Jonah Hill Jason Siegel <laughs> Catherine Heigl Adam Scott Jay Baruchel Martin Starr it was I think Craig Rob it was crazy mm-hmm. and it's like I say in my act it was like it's the Avengers of yeah. comedy everybody who was in that movie is now a lead so I guess obviously out of that yeah, I, you got I, the... I, I did well, and I do remember there was a couple of moments where I nutted up and got the part, and I do remember Judd saying at the end of the read, he said, fantastic job, and then I just left out of nervousness, and then five days later, I remember, yeah, I found out That's I got the awesome. part. Yeah. Well, to just refresh myself, I went today to check out some clips from Knocked Up, and I found one that somehow was not included in the final film. Oh, yeah. The even Coon- though— The Cooney Gone Wild. Yes, because the thing is, though, this yes. this would have been the funniest scene in the movie. You come in, just to orient our <laughs> listeners, this is your first time, I guess, meeting Heigl and Rogan in their yeah. hospital room. And you're upset because you were interrupted while banging your wife. <laughs> and, <laughs> and basically, you're explaining to her—well, and also we should say— Adam Scott <laughs> is standing behind you, <laughs> breaking up, breaking. couldn't stop breaking yeah. up. And then all we can see because of the framing of the shot is Heigl's feet, but the she's shaking. writhing yeah, 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 because yeah, 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 what yeah. your improv, basically screaming at them for bothering you, <laughs> and you're talking about smegma and just all kinds of stuff. People need to YouTube this, but it was unbelievable. So I guess my question is, first of all, why did that not get, I guess because people couldn't keep a straight face around you. But that movie, you rose to the occasion, and then you impressed Judd to the extent that, what did he say to you at the end? Well, from what I remember of filming it, you know, I was actually glad that Judd didn't know I was a comedian because that extended third act was, medically speaking, they're in danger of losing the baby. Mm-hmm. So the cord is wrapped around yep. the neck. And so I really admired what he was doing in the movie where you're doing this dramatic conclusion. The reality is a lot darker than what... And I think that's why that movie is genius and why Judd's a genius, because he was making something that is a potentially grim reality mm-hmm. in a comedy. I was uh, one of these I, children that had the, the cord the wrapped around cord, my yeah. Head, so yeah. That's what the big—and as a physician, yeah. you know, I was referencing that mm-hmm. the whole time, you know, just imagining that patient was Katherine Heigl and then also Seth's character. And I think that I just knew the tone should be dramatic, and I do remember, like— and, and Judd actually told me, he goes, usually I, I allow a lot of, like, improv, mm-hmm. you know, in my scenes. And he gave me a couple of scenes where I did some improv. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the very first scene where you see where Catherine Heigl's character are interviewing different gynecologists, mm-hmm. that was all an improv. Like, do you smoke cigarettes? And, <laughs> and things. there's a whole extended thing where I was looking at Seth. I was like, and I was like, do you, this? No, <laughs> this is okay. <laughs> Which they cut it. This right. is okay, right. but this? Mm-mm. <laughs> This is a said so like really yep yeah so there was a whole thing right. and so I think Judd found out that was the first take I think I did for Knocked Up and that I do remember getting applause from like Judd I think was intrigued by the fact I was doing some improv and some right. earlier takes right. that were not like big heavy scenes mm-hmm. and then I had done what Judd wanted me to do in these scenes you know so he was like you know we got it we we got it and many times you know we just made sure we hit all the dramatic beats. Mm-hmm. And then we had actually time left over, mm-hmm. and he said, just judging what you did on the previous day, you want to just do a free take just for fun? Mm-hmm. 
and literally there's somewhere on the dvd where they actually recorded just behind the scenes of everyone laughing uh, during that take mm-hmm. and little did i know i saw on youtube yeah yeah, yeah it was yeah. like little like bill Hader mm-hmm. was there laughing it was mm-hmm. i didn't even know right, you right. know and so everyone there like just dying laughing right. behind the camera and they're like huddled to watch it. Right. It, it may may have been my finest hour. I, really, it was a massive ever. Improv. I mean, looking back, I don't know of how I can. And I do remember thinking, like, I don't know how I can follow this. I've like, never I laughed harder know. at yeah. anything. So. It, yeah, it was yeah. really like. And I, I remember the best thing Judd did that helped my career. He took me aside and said, "Just want you to know." because this is your first movie and all, this will not make it into the final cut mm-hmm. because the tone of this has to be dramatic. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like a really good college coach, mm-hmm. like taking like a kid with potential and mm-hmm. just showing me the reality. Mm-hmm. What you know is just do not... He actually said, him to have the presence of mind mm-hmm. to like knowing... Because I was as green as grass. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about coverage. I didn't know shit mm-hmm. about movies. And then he just took me aside and said, I just want you to know... I don't want you to build up expectation because this it was a phenomenal scene, but it will not make it into the movie because of where I'm going with mm-hmm. it tonally. And he said that right as it well in the midst of everyone applauded. And that to me, that's like the best thing anyone could have done for yeah. me at that time in my career. He oh, grounded me. Right. It would have gotten your hopes up so it would have got my hopes up so then you would think you're in a big fancy Hollywood movie right. and then be incredibly pissed off. Mm-hmm. You know, and I really think that groundedness, I think that's the best thing anybody did for me at that point in my career. And he also though made it clear to you that this was not the end of your relationship, right? Yeah, no. He put me in Pineapple Express. He put me in Step Brothers. There were two other movies he put me in that he was doing, at that time, you know, in 07, 08, he was doing like five movies in a row at, at the same time. Role and Models was him or was that Role Models, no, I think that was with Paul Rudd and right. David Wayne. But right. off of my performance, I'd met mm-hmm. Paul Rudd and Knocked Up, and off of my performance there... He had hired me for role models, and I told Judd I was going to quit my job. And on the you had been planning to do that already. I was thinking about doing it maybe after Knocked Up came out, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And this is what I allude to in my act, which is true. Like after the day after finished filming Knocked Up, I go to work depressed, and it was different than doing even The Office. It was like I, I mean, Judd at the rap party sound his discovery. You know, can I go now? Can I just go? <laughs> I should just go. Go and from being just a leave, yeah. you know. It's like now if I stick around too long, shame on me. <laughs> but it was actually me that wanted to stay. Keep in mind, I'm a partner at Kaiser at this point. I'm mm-hmm. pulling down six figures mm-hmm. and making a good living with a pension, mm-hmm. guaranteed the rest of my life, and I'm tenured. Mm-hmm. So now I'm actually looking at: Do I have life stability for the rest of my life? And just for a movie, you know that. It's so funny, like, how I was trying to, d- to defer the showbiz thing, yeah. like, from Duke and to even medicine while I was a resident. But now here I am, just, I'm facing that fork in the road for the third time. Right, right. And it was my wife, their everlasting credit, she said, you, who was a doctor? And it was also a partner at Kaiser, and she mm-hmm. said, you have to do it. Because you're going to walk around depressed and resenting everybody and me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get in your way of success or failure. Mm-hmm. And we had just gotten married, too. I'm not going to have you mope around the house projecting your... I could have been a star. I could have been a contender. <laughs> I'm not going to stand here. You want right. to do it? Fuck it. Just do it. You know? So it was really her insistence. So you go into work like right after that and say what? Oh, I, yeah. I basically gave my notice. and Did you know, people think you had lost it? I think that older doctors thought that I lost it for sure. I do remember one older doctor going, you know, I can't believe you're leaving all this. And then I'm like, Skyser. I mean, I don't know. What to, <laughs> but it, then I do remember... My younger doctor friends, people who are my age, 
were like, I saw this coming a long mm-hmm. time. I was surprised he hadn't quit earlier. Right. So it's important for people to remember, though, that, again, most people became aware of you, even if they'd seen you in something before, they became aware of you through the hangover. This was before the hangover. This was two and a half years, right. if not three, right. before the hangover. And so, and, and I had no jobs lined up, really. Mm-hmm. And as for Judd, to his credit, he actually gave me parts. Like, there was a part in Drillbit Taylor that he gave me as a principal of this school. And then they ultimately decided to recast because I think they thought I was too young for the part. Judd paid me anyway. And... Because he wanted to encourage you to stay. Yeah, I mean, he just took care. I think he felt an obligation. I mm-hmm. felt like he felt responsible in many mm-hmm. ways. And then I had a part in Forgetting Sarah Marshall mm-hmm. that was written for me. And then I couldn't do it because I was filming The Dates Conflicted with Pineapple Express. Mm-hmm. So they gave it to somebody else. I remember being heartbroken on that because I was actually at the table read for that. Mm-hmm. But Judd took care of me. I mean, wow. he gave me basically parts in five of his movies and I do remember seeing him at an Emmy party years later, mm-hmm. and he congratulated me even after the hangover. But he said, are you doing hangover too? Because he knew it was going to be big money yeah, for everybody involved. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm in it. And he actually said, it, it moved me. It choked me up. He goes, good. Patted me on the shoulder and goes, yeah, good. I don't have to worry about you anymore. That's great. And I'm like, wow. Wow. That, wow. That, that's about as, as good as it gets. That's yeah. amazing. Well, yeah. so how did you first hear about the hangover? And when you did, at the very moment that you're weighing that offer, for anyone who hasn't yet seen the stand-up, just to give a... I know we're now getting into territory yeah. where there could be a little overlap, but yeah. what was going on in your life? Yeah, well, my wife is a breast cancer survivor, and she's still cancer-free since 08, and she was breastfeeding our twins when they were one-year-old, and she had a very rare type of breast cancer called triple-negative breast cancer, which is a very aggressive, like a melanoma, where a five-year survival rate is like 23%. So... This is getting very aggressive, and it was going into the muscle. And we started chemotherapy immediately. And with the first dose of chemo, we did notice that the tumor markers actually normalized, and it went down to normal values. And subsequent studies show no evidence of tumor. It was really, as I said in my act, it's a miracle from God, Allah, Oprah, or Tom Cruise. <laughs> and it was... Is there actually a medical explanation for that, though? Yeah, it was basically... The chemotherapy that she had to go through was... It's basically hardcore chemotherapy that's used for many cancers. It's basically you're just blasting mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. You're using really like the harshest drugs mm-hmm. you can find to get rid of not just breast cancer, but this is also the treatment used for lymphomas, mm-hmm. for Hodgkin's disease or non-Hodgkin's disease. I, I forget which one, but they're used for very aggressive lymphomas. Mm-hmm. And so this is a last resort mm-hmm. this is like in football it's like the onside kick of right. this is a desperate this is a hail mary mm-hmm. chemo and because there's no good specific treatments when your breast cancer is receptor negative they can't use some of the sophisticated treatments because you need the receptors there to receive it mm-hmm. so you can just kill off the cancer cells but keeping the other cells alive mm-hmm. this one you're just killing all just the cells nuking and, it, yeah. you're nuking it yeah and but we got lucky because – but the thing is even with the nuking it, it's only a 23% chance of survival in five years. But with this dose, she was doing well. Mm-hmm. And we knew we were on the road to recovery just only because we were doctors. Mm-hmm. But still she had 12 more rounds of chemo to go, radiation therapy to go, surgery, had everything. But it was around that time I got offered the part of Mr. Chow and the Hangover. And the reason I auditioned for that part for Todd Phillips, I remember – 
I had met him, I think, earlier that year in a general meeting. A, a friend of mine, and a shout out to my good friend, Michael Connell, who did this What's It Gonna Be music video that's on YouTube. <laughs> and Todd Phillips and his associate, Scott Budnick, they quite liked that video. They were actually going to make a movie out of it. I was just going to be an actor in that. Mm-hmm. But So I had a meeting. I do remember that's when I had met with Todd. Mm-hmm. I think it was a year prior. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember being reluctant about Mr. Chow because it was written for a 60-year-old man. And (laughs) in the script, it was the the bodyguards were my sons. So it was a whole different dynamic. Okay. And And you were being offered it outright? No, no, no. no, It was audition. It was just an audition. Okay. And I remember saying no to the audition. Because you didn't feel it was... A part that you this were was before for? Tran had the chemo. Yeah, this I remember saying no because I I just didn't want to audition for the Asian assassins and just that kind of I just didn't feel I was right for the role. Mm-hmm. And then and then they said Todd will be there in the room. Mm-hmm. So usually up until that point, most of my auditions were on tape. Yeah. Okay, so he's serious about me, mm-hmm. and then so he's in the room, and out of respect to Todd, since I had met him before, yeah. I did it, but then I still just kind of went in with a very carefree attitude, and I just—it's somewhere on the Blu-ray. I think that there's a Hangover trilogy Blu-ray where you see my audition mm-hmm. of, and you hear Todd laughing in the background where I'm just—I'm improvising. I didn't stick to script. Right. Not, nothing was—it wasn't barely in it for right. Mr. Chow. Right. Nothing, and so I just ad-libbed and just improvised, and I just went nuts. And Todd just <laughs> laughed, and then a few days later, I got the part. But and you'd previously was, made a movie with both Bradley Cooper and Ed Helms, right? I had done, yes, that's right. I did, well, I did All About Steve with Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. I did that right after Knocked Up came out. That was my biggest role up up until that point. I still, I love being a part of that movie. I still have a poster of it in my home because I am so proud of that movie because it was something I auditioned for right off the heels of Knocked Up. And and the director and Sandra Bullock, they gave me a chance and it was not written for an Asian. Mm -hmm. And it was like a six-week role. I was there for like two months, I Mm -hmm. think. And I got to know Bradley Cooper very well, and all of our scenes were together. And he really took me under his wing and, and like, helped me with, like, the – he really liked me and knocked up. I remember him really, like – so it was nice to get that instant respect, like, hey, I liked you and right. I'm like, wow, this is the dude from Wedding Crash. Right. Like my favorite, <laughs> you know, liked me, and he knows he knew right. who I was. And so we became fast friends, and – he kind of gave me tips on how to act, you know, off camera. And I remember our characters got in a, in a big spat and I wasn't emoting enough. And director said, you just got to go at him, you know. And, and Bradley was like, you know, he was going through a divorce at that time. And he was like, yeah, just kind of reference what I'm going through mm-hmm. and just, you know, just yell at me. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And we're just talking. And it, it was really to get his also his off camera reaction because he would he needed to like feel it. So he's asking you to reference his divorce. Yeah. Wow. And I'm just saying personal shit that I probably, you know, didn't know if I should say or not. And I'm yelling at him. Right. And he's just like going off and I'm like giving it to him deep. And then... And Dirge is like, what the fuck are you doing, man? So Bradley told me. He told like, you that's how, like, fucking naive I was. What? You know, oh, oh, no, Bradley told me he talked about the div. You know, I don't know. It's like, but I really admired his commitment. Yeah. And and I knew then. I mean, he told me back then he want, he would want to direct, direct ultimately. So none of this surprises yeah. me of what he's going through right now. So meanwhile, now when you get the part in The Hangover, you're back with him. You're You're back with Ed. I think Bradley even thought, like, did you mention me that I was the lead? <laughs> and I was like, to get the part, I was like, no, I didn't. He goes, why not? He goes, no, I actually said very, very innocently. No, I just, I, you know, I didn't, I, I thought that could maybe be a hindrance. You know, I don't want to, 
I want, and I also want to get the part on my own merit. Right, right, right. So I don't want to get it because I'm anybody's boy, right, you know? Right, right, And because we're bros, which we are. And also, I didn't think my part, my part was smaller than all of us these. Right. So I didn't think it was a big deal right. either way. And you had never dealt with Galifianakis before? No, I, well, I, well, I had, we started out doing stand-up comedy together. Oh, so you knew him from stand-up? So I knew him from, like, 99, just doing open mic. So I, I knew, I knew peripherally everybody. Wow. Zach, Ed, and Bradley. And so... Just, though, to come back to what you were dealing with in your home life, though, so you get the offer when you're now, like, one chemo in, right? Yeah. And so how did you overcome your reservations about doing it to end up doing it? Well, yeah, because there was a time, unbeknownst to everybody, Mm -hmm. I was not going to do it because Mm -hmm. I wanted to be with, I wanted to be with Tran during her, all of her chemotherapies because you get really weak off the chemos and you want to, and our kids were like one year old at the time. And there, there was just a load of responsibility. It had nothing to do with the movie or at that point it wasn't about, Oh, is this real right? I was like, right. I just gotta, I, I just gotta do the right thing. And then it was trans like, no, nah, like we did have some help with the in-laws. Like my mother-in-law, I give her a lot of credit. She, even she told me, Ken, you've done, such a good job just taking care of everything you, you're actually kind of getting this actually could be healthy for you mm. if you because in vegas i think it was only like four days to go and do to go, all your scenes all my scenes it was wow. like and spread out yeah yeah so it wasn't even concentrated so it was it was logistically it was possible right and it was really like my my wife's insistence and my mother-in-law's insistence they're like do it and so you're saying though when you say it wasn't concentrated that would mean that on four different occasions or whatever you'd have to go between Vegas and LA. Yeah, they would and yeah, and they would fly me back and forth even though like everybody else stayed at Caesars right, right, and right. partied and had a good time. You wanted to be home. Oh yeah, the, the moment I the next morning I'd fly home. Right. So I just missed a day of work. So I, I never got to really enjoy Vegas like everyone else did. Right. Yeah. At least for the first one. At least for the first <laughs> yeah, exactly for the first one. Um, so so yeah. just think again if somebody's somehow living under a rock and has not seen the hangover can you just let us know how we first meet Mr. Chow? Oh, yeah. He jumps out naked out of a trunk with a crowbar and beats up Bradley, Ed, and Zach. <laughs> and just runs away. And none of it's explained. <laughs> and, and How did he end up, not literally how did he end up naked, but as a character, whose decision was that? <laughs> oh, well, that was that was my idea. That <laughs> and was you... my idea to be naked. In, in the script, he had, he had his slacks on. He was yeah. shirtless but had slacks. And it was my idea to be naked and... I, I, because I was a big fan of old school with uh, Will Ferrell, just taught another Todd mm-hmm. Phillips movie. So in, in my, uh, you know, my opinion, it was really just, it was really just an homage to Ferrell. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything different than Ferrell did. <laughs> and so I just, and I just knew totally, I'm a, you know, old school is also one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies of all time. And so I just, I, I, I remember like preparing for the role and I just thought that would be, I actually ran it by my wife. Yeah, well, and I talk about it in the act, but it's all true. It's a true statement. I said, I think I should be naked. And I just feel like it's screaming to be naked. So midway <laughs> through the movie, you meet Mike Tyson and the tiger. Right. And then all of a sudden, the doctor from Knocked Up, because I was not known for that outrageous right. role. I was always like the uptight doctor. Right. Maybe the king. And, well, role models hadn't even come out yet. Right. So I was just that doctor from Knocked Up. Right. And I did think, you know, artistically, it would be really funny if it's, you'll just shock the shit out of everybody. <laughs> And it was also maybe subconsciously, it was also my way of saying, I ain't going back to medicine. Right, right. You know, I'm not going back. <laughs> you can't go back and see patients after they see your taint in a studio movie. So, 
you know, if I'm in, I'm in. Right. You know, there were, there were, I think subconsciously there was a side of that. You really and think? I do. I do think that metaphorically there was a, there was a thing of like, you know what, this is a track I am laying my life. You know, and I felt like I don't know if it was really a statement on medicine. I don't think it's mm-hmm. I don't think I'm that present. I, I just think it was more like a subconsciously. It, it, maybe it was a deep subconscious, but I, I, I but I wouldn't surprise me if that was, you know, if that was the case. But I, I did I did feel that artistically was right for the movie. Well, and, we all know that the gamble paid off because the movie comes out, makes about five hundred million dollars worldwide, spawns two sequels that. You know, in the midst Actually, of which... 467 worldwide. There we go. You know, who's counting? <laughs> but 581 worldwide in the second film. Anyway, this is Hollywood Reporter. It's right, good let's to be forget. accurate. Let's be accurate with our facts and figures. 278 domestically. But go on. <laughs> so... <laughs> Back check it. Well, so how did your life change? The, take me to just opening weekend. Oh, shit. Opening weekend was... I was in Hawaii with... My family, my wife and kids, and my in-laws, we actually all saw it together. Mm-hmm. I had a cap on, and it, was, and it was in Hawaii, and it was sold out. And I remember, I think, reading kind of the box office projections. We were, I do remember we were projected to go number three, mm-hmm. number two or three, because I think Up was out, like, in its second or third week, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, I think it was, like, might have been land of the lost mm-hmm. and then hangover and i was like i was scratching my head like it's like wh- why are we going up against a will ferrell movie like this is suicide <laughs> are you fucking kidding me like i do i like what like what is going on here right. you know i knew enough from like being knocked up and other movies like you know you want to do one comedy one family mm-hmm. something for everybody right right why are you going head to head that right. doesn't make any sense you're going to split that audience and and i i was just I was so shocked. It, we were, I think, the final tally. We were like the number one movie that weekend. And life just changed instantly because by the time I was at a sushi restaurant, back, it was back in L.A., mm-hmm. like maybe four or five days out after the movie mm-hmm. came out, and just pe- at the same sushi place that me and my wife would always eat in our neighborhood, and people would just recognize me, you know, didn't come up to me, you know, for photo. It, it just, How did you handle this? Some people are... You know, it, it it's too jarring for them. Was it okay for you or was it an adjustment? I think I enjoyed it because it was like, you know, just I felt like if the more recognized you, you are, it's fame is a collateral to get more work, you mm-hmm. know. If people know who you are, because, look, I'm, I'm a guy in the trenches auditioning for Asian Assassin 2 going like, <laughs> who? What have he done? Oh, let's get him, right. you know. Right. Let's just get him, right. you know. So I felt like, from a business standpoint, that would be amazing. Right. I did not – I wasn't aware that, you know – I mean, you know, The Hangover was such a sensation. And then – and even the – I think the second one was even more dizzying in many ways because I felt like we're in the eye of the storm. We're right in the middle of that zeitgeist. And and that one was more tailored for the actual participants because it was written yeah, right by Todd and – Whoever else. Yeah, Craig Mason. And yeah. I do think that it was I, I do remember that 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 intensity of fame, I don't think you can, anyone can be prepared for. You it, it's like you secretly wish it, but then you want to downplay it. You, I've been I feel, I feel like I've been through every level of because of the hangar, every level of celebrity psyche, you know. Right. You know, this is great. I'm just so happy to be here. This is this is not so great, but let me just pretend it's great. Right. This isn't great. And I'm gonna and I'm you know, yeah. like you, you, you go through all these things right. and i've determined my 
I think after 10 years at this level of, of since the hangover has come out like 10 years ago, you know, if I think if you're in a good mood, go out. Right. If you're not in a good mood, stay at home. You, figure, you figured it out. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I figured it out. Just yeah. stay at home. If you're having a bad day, it's just no different from any day job. If you're having right. a bad day at the office, right. if I'm having a bad day here and I'm working at a cubicle here, <laughs> you know what? Kenny's gonna stay. Right. Kenny's gonna stay to himself. Right. You gonna go out to lunch with us? No, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna like. You know, I'm just gonna stay here, just catch up on some work. I'll be okay. Okay, we're right. all going out party. Right. Oh, that's great. No, thank you. Appreciate that. So I'm just gonna stay in. It's just the same thing. Right. You have a bad day. Stay in. Stay in. Just stay in. You know. And so I, I, I think that the, the celebrity of it is. It was amazing, and everyone does handle it differently. I do remember Zach Galifianakis saying the best thing about it. He said, uh, by the end of the third one, where we knew it would be our, it would be the final one, he, he did say, you know, I think Zach says, I'm plus or minus with all, all the attention. And he, he, I'm literally right next door. He goes, Ken here, it looks like, he, I feel like he's running for mayor. <laughs> so, like, you know, so, like, because I would just never say no. Right. And right. anyone, you know, I have a hard time saying no. In, like, if right. someone wants a photo, right. it's hard for me. To, I think it's just because I'm an eager to please guy. No. I, I could blame it on my medical background. And, say, oh, and probably there is a bit of that, too, where, you know, I, w- I was in a profession where I never would think. I'm a late bloomer, so right. for me, I, I I do feel like I appreciate it more than mm-hmm. if I did if I wasn't in another profession. So there's a bit to that, but I do I do in general I think uh, it's just harder for me to to say no. But I I do I do love the moments where if Zach and I were in the same place, I remember we were at the Bellagio all having dinner, just the cast, and we're all having hats and in disguises. Right. We right. might as well wear afros right. with trench coats yeah. and, a, and a clown nose, but. It was. I do remember some some frat boys were just like aware it was us, and we're. Uh, and I think we're all kind of like this is the third hangover, so we're right. just kind of like used to it, and we're like, oh, we're. I think all of us had like mini panic attacks. Right. Like, okay, it's we're about this. what's about to happen? Yeah. And Zach said, "Oh my God, that's Mr. Chow." And then he, Ed, and Bradley just left. They're like, oh, I can't get handle it. He'll love Held it. Him. That's so funny. <laughs> and he yelled out and just ran away. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I guess if there's one tricky part of of the Hangover and the the trilogy, it might be the the conversations that you know have sprung up around the character, right? Sure. And, and just, I wonder what were some of the knocks that you've heard about the character or you for playing it, which you do address in your standup, and then what's the response to that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that there was a subset, especially at that time, people, you know, I do feel like people in the Asian American community that did not understand what I was trying to do with Mr. Chow. Because if you look on the surface, you're thinking, this is a guy with an accent jumping out naked, showing his tiny dick. What the <laughs> fuck? You know, and and that was never, ever my intention whatsoever. Anyone who knows me or watches Community, and and, and actually after The Hangover, like, are there any other roles I've ever done in accent? Do you, you, you basically, I was in my head, I was playing that. I was playing this like, this is the last time I can do a character with this kind of because you're making fun of the trope. You know, one of my friends who is very vocal in the Asian American community entertainment, he, he was one of my kind of a few defenders at that time because he understood what I was trying to do. He was like, and just shout out to Jeff Yang for this. He said, you know, I believe you are playing that stereotype and you're shattering it because mm-hmm. how many guys are jumping how many eight are you 
is there is that a real stereotype where Asians are jumping out naked in Vegas beating up white people? Is that a stereotype? <laughs> is that a trope? No, you're 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 pushing it so meta where you're actually playing it so you're actually playing it so hard where you're actually you're mocking it right. because even in even in like in the, the the role of Mr. Chow, with all due respect, in the first movie was so per- poorly written that. I'm making up words where we're releasing Black Duck. I say this in the act. I'm like, come on, you know. Or, or no, no. I was like, got chick. It's like got chick. And then it it was it, they. Everyone else, Todd, and everyone else thought that was release Black Duck. It means chicken die. Right. I was trying to make my wife laugh in Vietnamese. It means chicken die in Vietnamese. So I say, come on, got chick. And and even in Hangover Two, right. where they had, uh, I think they cut they had cut this from the scene. But I said. I actually even said in Bangkok, I, I got a lot of heat on my ass. I said, CIA, FBI, Interpol, angry Asian bloggers. Like, like I actually said that. Fuck him all. You know, it was like, it was like they, they didn't get that I was making fun of the stereotype. And then, and then, and, th- and then, like I said in my act, they're like, well, you're showing your tiny dick. You're, you're <laughs> reinforcing negative stereotype. That is not a stereotype. That is a sad reality. <laughs> like, we are perpetuating. No, I'm like, I'm literally in my head. I wasn't saying, "Hey, look at, look, I'm a, I'm a tiny dicked Will Ferrell." You know, that doesn't run in my head. You know what runs in my head? I'm like, oh fuck, I'm naked in this scene. <laughs> It, it, you know, like I'm nervous because I'm naked. Right, you know, right. I, like if you go on the like, I don't walk around. I don't walk around the beach. Like I actually wear like a, a cover. Like I, it's <laughs> you're not an my, exhibitionist. No, I'm yeah. not an exhibitionist at all. Right, right. And it's like, and it was. I was basically in my head. I was kind of like, do the opposite. It's almost that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza's like, just do the opposite yeah. of what your normal instincts yeah. are. And I felt the hangover. Well, was you that. know what else they have in common. Trinkets. Trinkets. There we go. Yeah, that's just not an Asian yeah. thing, you know. So it it is kind of it was totally <laughs> serenity now, right? Uh, but no, it, but there was looking back. I do think there is a lot of projecting on other issues that I that I have addressed and that I have addressed in my act. But I do think that, and I do think that people in the know. It was funny, like I like I. One of my a great Asian filmmakers, his name is Benson Lee, and I, he, I exec produced a movie called Soul Searching, mm-hmm. and and he even told me, and we're just talking about The Hangover, and he, and he said, he said it's not it's not how you get your fame, it's what you do with your fame, right. and it's like there was a lot of, and I think now with, I I think now with with Dr. Ken, which is a very accurate representation yes. of how I feel, how Asian Americans should be viewed. I think if anyone if anyone wants a time capsule, like what does Ken Jeong think about kind of Asian Americans in society? I mean, there, since then there's uh, yeah. crazy rich Asians, yeah, crazy rich Asians, yeah, a lot of that. Well, yeah. and just to bring us almost to the the obviously there's there's so many things that have yeah. gone on in the decades since the first Hangover, and I want to just almost rapid fire go through. Yeah, yeah, please, these. please. So. It seems like a part that probably maybe the first major thing to come out of The Hangover would have been Senor Ben Chang, yeah. the Spanish teacher on NBC's Community, which ran 2009 through 2015. You have said, Chow's a criminal, but Chang is crazy. You can't trust Chang. And I, I want to just address that show with one anecdote that I'm going to tee up for you, because this is a show on a broadcast network that can take a lot, which a lot of episodes, a lot of hard work can take a lot out of 
anyone under any circumstances. You've said, though, that season five, you've been doing this character for a while. It, oh, yeah. This character started to yeah. be the butt yeah. of the jokes. And what yeah. happened? Yeah, I, I think in any series, when you if you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to do a series that lasts more than four years, I, I guarantee you, when you hit a season five or a season six, you, you do wonder, like, okay, where's the end game in all this? And... By season five, and, and by the way, commun- if Hangover made me famous, Community made me a better actor. I worked with every, you know, it's it's one thing. It was like these high-profile dates of the Hangover because I was shooting them simultaneously. So when you're shooting like these amazing global blockbuster movies, y- you're spending just a handful of months. Community, I did 110 episodes, six years of my life. They seen me at my highest of highs personally off camera. Mm-hmm. They see me at, at my best and at my worst. You can't hide yourself, no. you know, and – and and they're they're friends for life, and it's everything that you think it is. And with Ben Chang, I was getting my character had been through the ringer. Where season one, I was a I was a grounded Spanish teacher. Season two, I lost my Spanish, uh, I lost my teaching credential. Season three, you know, I, I was uh, I had a nervous breakdown. My wife left me, and I'm fucking a charred mannequin leg, and I'm trying to blow up the school. You know, so by that time, I'm kind of right. like, where do you go from right, right, where I go to right, jail, right, and everything. And I think I was having a crisis of. What more is there for my character? Because I was eating like a pine cone sandwich in a in in the ass crack bandit episode. It was like the David Fincher homage right, episode. Right, right. And I just remember I was really bumping on that. I'm like, I know I have a nervous breakdown. I know I'm crazy. I know my character's mentally ill, but I'm I'm literally eating a pine cone sandwich. <laughs> and and then it, I just was like and I, and I was walking backwards where my character, if you watch it, my character walks backwards, which was which is amazing. But I was walking backwards, but but my, my chain face was here on the back of my head. I have a churro that I'm putting to my mouth to the back of my head, a long churro. Like everything was just so out there. I'm like, what the fuck? And I remember just getting really kind of like down about it. Like, okay, is this where I'm headed? You probably had a seven year contract or something. Yeah, you know, well, it was, it was more like where, where did I understood where I was going with, I, I felt like it was my fault for playing the character of Chang so hard that the writers were just trying to accommodate me. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Ken will do anything. Mm-hmm. Let's write to that, mm-hmm. which is, and so I wrote in a, a long email to Dan Harmon and I, I was like, I, I actually said, I, you know, I, I think this is, I, I, I think this is my doing. I think because of the work that I do and the type of work I'm known for, I think I have fed, you know, the narrative that, you know, I want to do anything and everything I can, you know, just, just go all out, which is true until now. I mm-hmm. think that I feel like I've, I've, I think with the character of Chang, I think he, there, there's something nice about if he was maybe had a more redemptive arc where he's, even if he's gone to jail, he's done his time. And he's still seen as this. I would like to see the aftermath of all the crazy stuff Chang has done, and almost being like a mentally ill Charlie Brown, where he's trying to kind of redeem himself. Even if he and he he doesn't have to. He could still quote unquote lose in the end. Mm-hmm. But just to see a frat right. him just trying hard for a comeback, even if he never succeeds, right. that to me would be wonderful. Even if that. And I said I don't I don't mind if it's less funny, and I don't mind if it gets. Um, and I'm not looking for a bigger part. Yeah. You know, I'm, this is not the, you know, it is the actor's ego, but it's not the actor's right. ego. I'm not looking to be a star. Right. I just love the show and I truly love the character. Mm-hmm. And Dan sent me the nicest email and he said, he disclosed everything. He said, right now, all my energies is 
really focused on how to write off Donald Glover's character right now because it was a next-to-last episode mm-hmm. where it would be his final episode. And that was a major blow to the show. And so all my energies are, are, are servicing that. And and also with this David Fincher episode, it's such an odd, unusual episode. We're shooting it in different lighting. We're shooting with different cameras. And there's not a lot of jokes in the episode. Chang is the only character that's actually providing some well so if you see me in the beginning and, and towards the end mm-hmm. it's just some laugh out loud moments yeah. we, we're, we're servicing we're, we're placing chang where we're just getting some laugh stops for pace so we can just service because it's a risky episode where i feel it's one of my more unusual episodes so um i hope you understand why we're doing this and if you can just please do me a favor and eat a Eat a pine cone sandwich for Uncle Dan. I promise you, the next episode, I will write you a monologue where you will cry and your daughters will be, this guy has range. And then the next episode, which was the bear down for midterms episode, you see my character kind of cry out of the blue, just explaining what he, what Chang has been through and explain to the study group. Ah, I get choked up when I think about it now. Ah, uh, fuck it. Yeah, he, he, in that script, Dan wrote, all of Chang's words were my 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 email. So it was just words in my email, and it just because because I was like, I was like, how is he gonna? I'm not that good an actor. How is he? Gonna, how can I cry in a scene? I'm not. I've never done that before. I, I just want some grounded material. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about it. So, and then and I to this day I I I get choked up thinking about it because I've never thought that uh, a I think it's. For me, my favorite Chang moment, even though it wasn't the high, highest profile episode and and it's otherwise, you know, maybe doesn't stand out like the paintball episodes. But for me, it was my favorite moment, maybe as an actor, because A, I was never able to cry in a scene. And those were all my tears in that scene. And then B, I, I've never, usually you you think of your art and even my life, just when you're talking about like like even in college and kind of channeling uh, for lack of a better word, like negative energy into something positive. So I've, I always was conditioned to think art is all about channeling your negativity and trying to find, you know, take a sad song and make it better. Mm-hmm. And I never experienced where you could, you could actually get inspired by something so incredibly gracious of Dan and be so moved, something that's so positive, and then enhancing my own art out of positivity. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I've always thought you just have to be a, a broken toy to be good at it. And I didn't know you could actually be a better actor by being, by being happy and grateful. And that's, exactly. I, and that's to this day, whenever I cry in a scene, even on Dr. Ken, I think about that. I, think about that. And, I watched and, the scene yeah. today and it was, you could, it's a very, you know, it's anyone that thinks you can only anyone who who is of the of the belief that you can only do the wild and crazy guy should go check Thanks, that brother. out. Yeah. I, and and I have to say this: I looked at Joel and John Oliver and Yvette in that scene yeah. right before the scene began, and I and I looked at them for no reason, and seemingly out of nowhere, I just said, "This one, you know, I love you guys." I looked at Joel, I love you very much. Mm-hmm. I just started like, and action, boom, and and then Joel texted me later on that day, he goes, "Dude, I've." So he said, "That's the best work you've ever done, man." He told me it's it's uh, 
Yeah, a lot of stories, but thank you for including that. Of course. And as we, I promise, I'm not going to take too much more of your time. No, but please. I I'm good, man. Make sure to. I live in the valley, all right? It's going to take, <laughs> it's going to take literally a, a helicopter flight for me to get back in time for dinner. Well, I think So we... I'm stuck here with <laughs> Scott, which is like the subtitle of this podcast. Stuck here with Scott. That should be the. Yeah, well, you know, for future shatters. celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, how was stuck here with Scott? Yeah, pretty much what you think. I just stayed. <laughs> well, I would be I would be uh, a bad host of stuck here with Scott if I did not at least want me know. to leave. How well, dare you? How dare you? What are you, Hollywood? How uh, Dr. Dare you? Ken, Dr. Ken, we've got to say there was now an unexpected thing that you have said you may be regarded as, quote, the biggest accomplishment of my career. I think you said that in the stand up special, close quote, which is this. ABC series, Dr. Ken, and it turns expectations on its head because you're the sh- essentially the straight man in a lot of it. You are on a series with a principally Asian cast, which I think it, on a network show, on a, on a major network, had happened only with Margaret Cho, who happens to be playing your sister in this show, and then also, I guess, with Fresh Off the Boat. Also all on ABC, I think, right? Yep. So now it was well-received enough to last, be, to get a pickup after the first season, but for various reasons, could you know, after 44 episodes, that was it. And I guess I just want to give you, you know, one hit on this show because it obviously meant a lot to you and to a lot of people who, even if it had a limited run, just what it, what it represented to a lot of people. Yeah, it was, to this day, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done I never thought in a million years I could create something just out of nowhere and then have 44 episodes on, on, on ABC, on a Disney, on Disney, you know. And, and, and as time goes by, I grow even more fond of, I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I've done everything that I've ever, beyond what I set out to do. I mean, you know, not only be a part of Hangover and Community, but to actually make my own show. Mm-hmm. And then to, and also um, really, there's so, it's almost like you you block out, and, and I'm not saying this to, hooray, like to pat myself on the back or hooray for me, but, you know, you, you know, I, I was... I was really fighting hard behind the scenes of arguments that I even I have forgotten, you know, just to push progress. And yeah. and it wasn't about it wasn't even to tell other people or to inspire other Asians to do I just did it because that's just who I who I am. Well and you, you know you guys deliberately avoided the Asian American specific storylines. It was not always like this is a message, you know, like they Samuel Goldwyn or somebody's like, if you want to send a message, use Wells Fargo or whatever it was at that. What's the freaking telegram? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Right, you right, get my right, point. Right, right. This is not what this is. It can be subliminally about that, but that's not what this was. I wanted I wanted it as I wanted it as as slice of life as I could because um, I wanted it to be because my wife is Vietnamese. And, and it, even in the show, it was a very subtle thing. And I honestly didn't care if people knew, but I was Korean and my wife's Japanese. So it was like the first inter-Asian, mm-hmm. in, inter, you know, like it, it was a lot of firsts that is whether people know or not, I know. And that's all that matters. Like right. when you do something that's just for you at the end of the day, you know, and that project at the end of the day was for me it it there's so many things that i I, i'm inordinately 
proud of. And but you're right to your point. It was like you know we're both physicians in that show, just like me and my real life wife. And I didn't want to be like. I, I kept telling the the writers and 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 I was in the writers room every day. I said I don't want this show to sound like it was written by a white guy, for lack of a better word. I didn't want it to be written like, hey, hey, how was life today? Oh God, it's tough being an Asian American doctor in the San Fernando Valley. How was yours? So it wasn't like you know, wasn't shoehorned, you know, and and with good intention, you know. But it was, you know, I literally this is how Asians talk. This is you know how me and my wife talk. I had a had I had a shitty day. How was yours? Right. Shitty. Right. You know, it was right. like. That's how Asian American. That's how I talk, right. and I'm Asian American. Right. My life that could be different right. for other Asian Americans who have different stories, mm-hmm. and and those stories deserve to be told. But I told it in my way as a guy who was born in Detroit mm-hmm. and grew up Asian American, and then also I was guilty about. I felt we did a, a great episode that first ep- the first year of like a Thanksgiving episode where. I'm trying to prove my Koreanness, and I'm wearing like I'm wearing this Korean garb, and this it was that it was a female Korean mm-hmm. outfit. It was just stuff like I was a lapsed. I felt right. guilty about being this lapsed Korean. Right. I felt like I was just so Americanized, right. you know. And I felt like my some of my relatives were. We did an episode where my relatives were making fun of me because I didn't speak Korean very well, <laughs> and so I had me going. And I did go to a Korean language school when I was a kid. And and we actually did an episode about that where it was like where you count one two three four and I and I said they're like Hana Dul Set and then I said Ken that <laughs> was like a joke that so you know so there were there was all these things right. where I'm just talking about how out of touch you know I am and and to me it was really you know and I I fought hard to you know and I will say this publicly that. You know, there were pressures even internally, not ABC, but there were pressures internally, even within production. Hey, it's a lot easier if you get a white wife because it's a lot easier to cast than Asians. And I'm like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, this is, if this is my life. Right. And I will cast whoever I want to cast mm-hmm. as I'm allowed to. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot, there was no doubt, you know, behind the scenes who, whose vision that was. Right. You know, so there there was a lot of things that that show doesn't get credit for. But to me, it has informed me because of that show. If Community made me a better actor, Dr. Ken made me a better writer. And it was right when Dr. Ken got canceled to deal with to deal with that grief. That's where I went into doing stand up because mm-hmm. I, I found out that. Because I would ghostwrite a lot of episodes, mm-hmm. and just as any showrunner would do, I would, I, I mean, I would take the final draft home and just put my own stamp. Like right. when our characters would argue, I would talk to my wife, like, like how would we? I would actually mimic an argument with with my with my wife, mm-hmm. and we would like, how are we? Oh, how yeah. are we going to argue like right. this? So I wanted real life dialogue, and and then it it was like I was on such a high writing off of that show, and I enjoy. I, I mean, my favorite part of Doctor Kim was writing on that show, being in a writer's room every day, and then. And then that applied to my stand-up. And which you hadn't done for like 10 years. I hadn't done in 10 years. Well, let's that, that leads us into the last question, which is just this crazy, crazy rich past year. I mean, for you, yeah. it's been an... Un- let's, let me just, before you go off with this, let's just recount for listeners. You play the patriarch of a Singapore family with sort of new money in Crazy Rich Asians, which was the first Hollywood film with an all-Asian principal cast since the Joy Luck Club 25 years earlier. And that... I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain, but basically came out of just a supportive outreach to John Chu, I guess, that he made actually to you or, to, or vice versa when Dr. Ken ended. So in that, you have the 
not a lot of screen time, but great screen time with Aquafina, which I understand was mostly improvised, and and was you at you know doing what you do do best, which is I think the the kind of crazy comedy, but grounded in humanity. So that's that's one of the things that happened in the past year with such social significance. Then there was the stand-up special You Complete Me Ho, which is on Netflix, which is your first televised stand-up special ever and directed by, again, John Chu, and then and dealing with a lot of the stuff we've talked about. And then The, the Masked Singer, which also has its roots in Asia, which some people don't know, and has become a phenomenon here. So just if you want to connect those dots and sure. just say what this past year has been like for you, it's a pretty... There are a few people that have had as much exciting stuff in the last year. Yeah, this year has been – there's so many – the last 12 months has just been my year of first because, you know, I think after Dr. Ken, I was kind of like, well, I don't know what else is there to do. And because I kind of – in my head, for me, for my value system, I feel like I've done it all. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I was – there was a part where like, you know, this has been – and even if this is it – this is fucking amazing. And it was kind of, I, I wasn't sure uh, where I wanted to do. And and the true story of like meeting with John Chu, he actually came to Dr. Ken to the set. This was even before it ended. Mm-hmm. And um, we just had a like a general meeting. And uh, my wife and I are huge fans of Crazy Rich Aid, the book. My family, mm-hmm. like, uh, I mean, way before. Yeah. I knew after reading the book, I said, yeah. this this will be, this will be an amazing movie. Mark my words. This will be an, an incredible movie. Yeah. Just reading the book, just being a fan of Kevin Kwan's writing. Right. And so I interviewed, I had a meeting with John and he told me like, you know, I don't know if he had casted Constance. I think he might've just casted Constance, but didn't cast Henry Golding. Mm-hmm. And so there, this is very early on. And I just said, look, I said, I just want you to know, I would love to be a part of this in any way, shape or form. But as a, I did tell him, like, as a producer myself, though, if this is more, I did tell him, like, this is more important than any one person being involved in it. I, I just want you to know, even if I'm not in the movie, I will support it, like, I will promote and support it like it is my movie. This is, I think, I said this could be the, I said this could be the biggest thing for Asian Americans more than my show, mm-hmm. more than all these, other, more than anything combined. Mm-hmm. And here I am on Dr. Ken on a set with Five Asian right. Americans and telling him that. Right. And then, and I, and I think he remembered that, you know, and we became friends out of that, uh, that meeting. So there, it turned out later on in the process, a couple months later, after Dr. Ken had ended, but we, weren't, we didn't know if we were coming back or not. But he was like, you know, I think you could play the Papa Go. And it's a small role, but, you know, I think you could really do well. And he storyboarded, he emailed it to me, and I was like, dude, I said, I'm in. Whatever you want, <laughs> I'm in. And then um, we talked about Aquafina, and then he, he just said that he was that was his vision. And I said I get it. That's that's funny as hell. And then uh, what a lot of people don't know is that the day that that dinner scene, that my first scene in Crazy Rich Asians, where your son's taking the pictures, where his son's taking the pictures, <laughs> that was a fixed date. Where if Dr. Ken got renewed, I would have to be in New York for upfronts for ABC. And I can tell that to wow. to to the Hollywood Reporter podcast. Yes. So yeah. that date was fixed; they couldn't move around it. So every day, because in television, as as you know all too well, you know that second week in May is just it's 
Death Week yeah. or or Life Week, right. and every day you'll find out in real time reading Hollywood Reporter. Right. <laughs> I, you, uh, oftentimes, I will know just minutes before right. it's announced on THR. Right. right. You know, from Leslie Goldberg, that <laughs> like you know, like this is going on. So right. I'm waiting every day, like at home. Right. Okay. And then, and I have, I am finding out if it, like John Chu is like, it's a week before we're shooting it. Because so imagine so it's a week before we're shooting it and John and John and I it was a leap of faith and this testament to our friendship because by that time we had become friends right. and he said and we didn't want we didn't go through our lawyers we didn't go through our agents I didn't go I, I didn't I didn't buffer anything right. it was just him and I and right. I said I just gotta I said I I will do this on if you're shooting that scene on a Tuesday right. ABC upfronts are on Tuesday I don't know I will let you know if it's if and and to his credit John kept that offer until I let him know. And, and I said, and every day I would text, check in with him right. on my volition. And, and I, I think my team wouldn't like, don't do that. You'll lose. Life. You know, it, we still haven't really worked out the yeah, comp, but yeah. it was about availability. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. And also I didn't want to, I didn't want to jeopardize a production. Like right. I want him to, you know, it, it was a lot of things. Yeah. Yes, personally, selfishly, I wanted to be involved in it, but I was actually as equally, maybe more concerned, get, I yeah. want you to, you know, get, Do I don't well. want to hijack yeah, the movie, yeah. Yeah. you know, and so I would let him know, and the moment we found out we were canceled, he might have been the second text, I think I texted my wife first and then texted John and then I said, yeah, we're canceled. Well, that'll he, soften and, the blow though. Yeah, right? and he goes, he goes, he goes, and he said, so he goes, so sorry, we'll be on, you'll be on a plane in Malaysia, like, next morning, which I was, <laughs> oh. and... And I do remember like feeling numb the whole time when yeah. I was in, and I think again, much like how I played Mr. Chow so recklessly, because mm-hmm. I think I was just upset at trans situation mm-hmm. and just channeling those energies, my rage into Mr. Chow. There was a lot of anger, I think, mm-hmm. in Mr. Chow that I was channeling. Mm-hmm. In this one, I I don't know. I, I it wasn't so much, it wasn't that same level of uh, of emotion at all, but. It was professionally speaking, just a a setback, and I I do remember just feeling a bit numb and not, and, but also feeling very loose. It was almost like a devil may care attitude of like we were just making uh, we were just making choices on the like John it he he's one of the most laid back people I know period and and we were just kind of he was just in the moment. No one is more in the moment than John Chu because he was and and also with such calmness. So we we were just like I had prepared some some of the dialogue. I was going to even speak, you know, in another language. And then John was like, you, you, and "We didn't know until the minute uh, we we're going to do it, like how the character was going to be." And I go, "Should I? Do I have an accent?" Like it, we hadn't even it, right, like right. everything was was on the fly. On right? the fly. Yeah. And so, should I have an accent? And he goes, "I don't know. Do you want one?" I was like, "I don't think so." And then we're going back and forth. And then and then he was describing this dolly shot of what he wanted to do. And I said, "Ah," uh, I said. Well, wouldn't it be funny if I did a bait and switch <laughs> where you talk in the accent and then when the camera comes to you and then and then you do the misdirect and say <laughs> and it was all on the fly. Right. I, I didn't even prepare it's not like I prepared this right. on a plane or even had not even the night before. I I honestly didn't in a good way, you just I literally had a freedom of we just freestyle it and yeah. then uh and then I said, "Oh, I don't have an accent. I also studied in the states, just like you, Cal State Fullerton." <laughs> and then, and a lot of that um, wasn't in the book. And and me and Aquafina just let it fly, and the rest is history. Yeah, you know and that um, movie's done so it uh, well in so many ways, not just commercially. And and I guess from that, you and Chu. Yeah, go that's for- right. So yeah. a year ago, um, it was about a year to this day. Like I saw an early screen. No, even 
over a year ago, I saw an early screening of Crazy Rich Asians, an early cut of it, and we were just talking, and it was just out of friendship. Like, it is a testament to John Chu and just how in the moment he is. And I said, hey, man, you want to – he goes, um, I'm doing a Netflix special. This is way before the movie came mm-hmm. out. And I was like, you want, you want to – you interested in maybe directing? You want to come see my stand-up? So he literally came later that week, and he just loved it, and he said, I'm in. Wow. And I was like, really? And then – that's how that's how cool a guy is. And even after Crazy Rich Asians became a hit, and we we're shooting in September, and the movie came out in August, and I literally gave him as as out of friendship, I gave right. I knew he was getting a lot of offers, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was high in demand, and my date was fixed. And I said, "Hey, look, just if you if you can't do it, no problem." Mm-hmm. I, I was actually asking him, yeah. giving him as many outs because right. I didn't want it to be awkward. Like, right. hey, I'm about to. I'm about to work with Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Like, like, you know, like, right, right, right. You don't have to set him free. Yeah, I want to set him free. He goes, "No, I'm in, dude." And I, even until like the couple weeks before, I was like, "If you still don't want to do it, I can get someone else." I want, I want you to know, like, you know, he was, "No, I'm in, dude." And you know, and 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 I give him credit because with the stand up, it was it was actually his idea to put my wife Tran in the audience. That I usually it was key. You know, yeah, it was key, and he knew it first. That was the because a lot of people are wondering what what will directors bring to a stand up special because in many ways it's pretty much set up like a multi cam where you just got like two or three you got three or four cameras because it's all about you it's yeah. all about you on stage right. and you just get it from right angle it's not as difficult you know as a movie so and I remember John that was his first words was like I want to get Tran in there because that story will resonate even more mm-hmm. and yeah I, that was. I think that it is he, he responsible for the hose in the front? No. <laughs> John Chu is many things, yeah. but a pimp isn't no. one of them. Am I right, guys? I can say that for the record to the Hollywood Reporter. Um, no, John. John is <laughs> he's a director, not a pimp. Right. right. Um, no. He's, <laughs> um, he, I was actually I was actually almost sick to my stomach when I found out like because that was not planned and especially. The first one with the first name being Tran, I was actually, after filming, I actually went to I went to the club owner. I was like, oh my, I said, please tell me you did not position. Because, <laughs> you know, I knew it wouldn't be anyone from production. No right. one would be, do anything that cheesy. Right. But you just, you know, but it is stand-up comedy. And it's like, you just don't know if they're just trying to help. You know, like, hey, did you, did, even if it wasn't the manager, did, right. did like the ticket taker, the box <laughs> office, you know, you know, like I, I had to get, re- I was actually nervous because, right. I was like, if this is set up, because the laughs were so plentiful, right. I said, if this is set up, I can't in good faith use this, <laughs> because I know every question that will be inundated when we, when I'm promoting right, this, right. they will say, you know, they will know it's fake, and then I can't answer with a straight face, this is fake, you know, right. I can't, so I, I would just rather take it out, because if it right. looks, if you're watching this on your phone, and this looks fake, you'll know, right. and it, it wasn't, because there's a look on my face, yeah, I actually, and I even kept, I think, in the scene, like, oh my god, someone in the back is fucking with me, <laughs> I said, someone is fucking with me, because I've never seen him saying that on stage, because it's, and it's left in there, because oh, I was, I was so, ner- and it's now, now it's like comedy history, oh, where and, it was, and on the place where you want to be, if you're doing televised stand-up Specials. It I mean, was Netflix. The gods of stand up like, were smiling on me that day. It, w- it really was. And that's why I wanted to do it in a club. Yeah. Because, and that's based in truth, because so many stand up specials are done in big theaters, which are amazing. But, you know, I, no, I, I, I'm a comedic actor at heart. And I'm, I'm at best, I'm at my best when I'm, 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 I'm reactionary. 
and and I think that even if you don't like the material, you 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 you'll like my energy. And that's you know? true with Mass Singer and all the other things you Mass Singer. So that, that is like that is <laughs> who like would have who would have guessed? Like like now that. The Mass Singer was like that's my mom's favorite show in Korea, right. and it's like the number one show in Korea. And I, I was kind of, and I'll even tell you this that I don't think I've told anyone. Like there, there, there was a time I was offered to be a contestant in the beginning, oh. and 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 to quote Dave Chappelle when he was offered Dancing with the Stars, not yet. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, not yet, not yet. That's there like, will be a day, one day, but not yet, not yet. Well, will we and, have a second season? And, yes, there will be a second okay, season, cool. and I am so. I really credit that production team of uh, Craig Plesta, Izzy Picabara, and everyone at Fox because they. <laughs> I remember like uh, there was a, a, a sound guy, and he said, "I said, like we didn't know what the show was going to be about at all." And I said, "Level with me. What do you think?" Because I, I, I like oftentimes like I'll you know you'll talk to crew and right. just say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" You know, because he's done all these this boom operator done all right. these uh, kind of kind of competition shows. It's my first time ever doing it, much less be a judge on right. it. I was like, what do you think what do you think it's about? And he goes, he said, either this will be the best thing ever, the biggest hit ever, or the worst <laughs> thing ever to happen in television. Well, it, he said there will be no in between. Well with your uh, track record, <laughs> things seem to break the so, right way. We, so. we got lucky and, and no, it was really uh it was so it was so enjoyable like watching and I, I give I give them credit where the, the I have to say this where on the edit of uh I didn't. I just like like with Judd assuming you know he say assume assume really really outlandish stuff will be cut. Right. You know you you go right. with that mentality. Right. You, you do the best you can. Right. And even in Crazy Rich Asians, I, I I assumed a lot of that would be cut, and John kept it all in. And then and so I assumed also in Mass Singer, I was like, well, I'll just assume a lot of the stuff. I'll just be stupid. Right. And just not <laughs> let it rip. Let it rip. <laughs> And then, and then me and my wife were watching the show. There was one thing where I had just get correctly guessed Tori Spelling as, uh, yes. a, a, and it was by accident because I, I am the dumbest judge <laughs> on the show. I don't know anything about pop culture. I mean, I'm really not that good. And then the following week, you know, the writers had all set up like, "Oh, wear a king's hat; it'll be fun." Right. And then when they had uh, the B, who was now revealed to be Gladys Knight, sing an amazing song, and everyone's raving about her, and I just was in character going like. That was an amazing performance, almost as amazing as episode five <laughs> last week, where I correctly guessed Tori Spelling, and I I proceeded to talk for five minutes on how amazing I was. So there I was in the third act, not knowing, and Margaret Cho, I had incorrectly guessed her, like not knowing, is this a fork in the road for Ken Jeong? No, because I am an amazing. So from one winner to another winner, buzz, 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 and and they kept it all in, and That's I amazing. like. And I told all the, I said, guys, you guys are amazing. And like, <laughs> it, I, I think they're, I think they're onto something of keeping, it's almost like, it's almost like you, 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 you've had your American idols, yep. you know, and that is, you know, uh, with all due respect, you know, probably have seen better yeah, days. Right. And then, and then you, you, you get something, it's like you're it's building, fresh. you're building a fresher mousetrap yeah. for whatever that means. Well, Dr. Ken, thank you for schlepping down here. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, and keep up all the terrific work. And people and fans <laughs> of Scott Feinberg, please, please listen to more Stuck with Scott with amazing, if you don't like me, you'll love Spielberg, you'll love Streisand. They're all stuck with Scott. You three, you know, I feel <laughs> yeah. like you're always in the you know same what? breath. We, we're always on the short list for everything in this town. And it's just like, you know... It's getting annoying for yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, you know... I mean, I've grown to love my rivals and my peers. 
<laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are now part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. TV's Top 5, It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.